Hey, this is Dan Reeves. I'm the lead pastor of Journey Church in Jonesboro, Arkansas. Welcome to our podcast. Before we get going, we just want to take a moment to thank you for tuning in. We believe that you matter, not only to us, but to Jesus. Our hope is that you find something new and life-giving in Him today. Here's today's message. Hey Amen. I like that song. Man, that's an awesome song. Uh, well, welcome to Journey. My name is Nathan McCallum, if I don't know you. Um, I have been a long time, my wife and I have been a long time members here, have served in a lot of different roles uh, over the years. Right now, leading a, a, helping lead a men's group with Aaron Baker. So just grateful to be part of our church and grateful this morning to be able to open God's word together. A uh, couple of announcements quickly that Dan wanted me to share. Uh, Bert, first of all, that Journey Basics, was, which was supposed to be today, has been pushed back a week uh, because Dan uh, is sick, of course, and so he will be leading that next week, February 6th. So make sure and be here that, for that. And then also next week, really important as we honor uh, the Bakers. Uh, Aaron Baker, who's been on staff here for about three years now, uh, is rolling off, been a member of the church and a vital leader in our church since the beginning and before. So, uh, but he's rolling off staff. He's, he's felt God's call, as we mentioned last week, if you were here at the end of the service, uh, back into uh, the work world in a different way. Uh, not full-time ministry, but of course still still be part of our church. But we get a chance next week to honor them, uh, what Aaron and Beth have done to invest, uh, especially in these last few years while he's on staff. And I told him last week, we're going to miss him being on staff. The Lord will be uh, faithful uh, to supply, but uh, we will definitely miss him and uh, on staff at our church. But So that's next week. Both of those are next week. After the service is the reception and then Journey Basics. So make sure you make a part of that. Uh, we are in a series, as uh, Michael mentioned earlier, called Abide. And uh, really, it's just kind of uh, focusing in on this idea of John 15, 4, where Jesus says, abide in me as I abide in you. And that statement is found in the middle of what is predominantly called the farewell discourse in the gospel of John. And so basically, you're looking at the first 12 chapters of John kind of going from basically beginning in eternity past where God, where, where the word is with God, the word was God, and word is, of course, referring to Christ. And then it goes all the way up through really three years of ministry for Jesus. But then at the end of John, as you get to chapter 13, he really slows down. And for the next four chapters, it's really basically all about the night of the arrest and the, and the discourse he gives to his disciples. And so where we find ourselves now is we've walked through the discourse for the last few weeks. Dan has preached through that and he's really, he's preached on four different topics to this point. We talked about greater things. When Jesus says, you're gonna do greater things than I, what does that mean? And, and we said basically what it doesn't mean is it's not better things. It's kind of hard to trump raising somebody from the dead, right? I mean, you can't really do better things. You're healing people from across the, 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 uh, the area. It doesn't even have to be in the house. It's not better things. What it is, is it's a multiplication of his works and it's an, ex an expansion of the range of his works. Jesus being in one place and one time, but now filling his disciples with his spirit as they go out. And now we see a multiplication of his works. We are sitting here in Jonesboro, Arkansas, talking about Jesus because of the multiplication and the expanse of his works and the range of those works. So we talked about that and we talked about power to the people. How, well, how do we do that? Well, we do that through the spirit. Jesus basically tells them, I'm going away and it's actually good for you that I do that. I'm sending you the spirit so we can do the works of God and bear fruit. And then we talked about staying where he is, the actual abide passage. What does it mean to abide, to be with Jesus who is the true vine that enables us to bear the fruit that God has intended. And then last week, we talked about preparing for pushback. The reality is Jesus got a lot of pushback for doing the works of God. We should expect nothing less. And the way we press into that pushback is not to be defensive, but rather to rely on the spirit and to love. And so as we finish out the Abide series today, we're gonna be in John chapter 17. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. The words will be on the screen, however, if you don't have one. Uh, and as, by the way, we have Bibles out there, so if you don't own one, we'd love to give you one as a gift. But uh, as you're turning there, I want to just do a, a quick uh, survey of the room. 
So I'm going to ask a few either or, que- or, yeah, either or questions, and you can raise your hand depending on if you want to. This is a Baptist church, but you're totally allowed to raise your hand. Uh, on which one of these maybe identifies you better? Okay, so I'm going to start with an easy one that should hopefully have everybody's hands raised on one of those. Let's talk about the bypass, okay? Are you guys more of a, uh, a two-lane bypass person or a one-lane bypass person? Let's see the two lanes, right? Everybody, I hope. And every once in a while, we get two lanes on one and one on the other, but I have a conversation with RDOT later on that. Are you, uh, are you more of a creature of habit or a varieties of spice of life kind of person? So how about creature of habit? Who in here would say, I'm pretty much a creature of habit? Okay, variety of spice of life. That's me. And I have habits for sure. Not all of them are good, but I definitely like more variety in my life. Uh, of course, everybody loves, you know, like the, the milder times, fall and spring. Who, but summer, winter, the two extremes, that's pretty much a dividing line for a lot of people. Who would say they're a winter person? If they had to choose, okay. All right, praying for you. Summer, yes. I know you can always put on more layers, but why would you want to? It's not comfortable. What about, uh, this is going to be maybe, uh, thanks to reruns, any age might be able to identify with this, but probably more for people my age and older, more Friends versus Seinfeld. Friends, yes. All right, praise God. Seinfeld, okay. Man, we got a lot of work to do. How about favorite boss? Favorite boss, Michael Scott. The other option, I was waiting for that, Ron Swanson. Okay, next week, or I guess two weeks from now, Super Bowl, you got the Super Bowl coming up. Are you, uh, are you more of a, uh, I'm going to this, watch the Super Bowl for the game, or I'm watching for the halftime show and the commercials? Who's got the game? Yeah, my people. Halftime show and commercials. My people, I don't know about the halftime show, but definitely commercials. All right, a couple more and we'll wrap up. Uh, this is an important one, okay? Miyagi Do? Eagle Fang? Miyagi Do? No, yeah, me neither. Eagle Fang? Cobra Kai. Yeah, we're going to talk about mercy today. So, and then the last one How many like your steak cooked medium or medium rare? How many like it cooked the wrong way? Okay. Well, you can see as you look around the room, unity around different topics, whether lighthearted, fun, it's pretty easy to to find unity in our world. The reality is that unity is something we see everywhere in our culture. People unite over all kinds of things. They unite, unite, of course, over things like uh, causes, uh, philanthropies. I remember the ice bucket challenge several years ago that just went crazy. You know, people uniting over something like that. They unite, of course, over they unite, of course, over religion. People unite over sports teams. They unite over careers. You know, people that have similar careers can form a, a bond. People unite over hobbies, whether it be a sports hobby like a, like golf, or whether it be other types of hobbies you might do with your hands, or if it's hunting. Uh, a lot of different things. People unite, of course, over politics. It's not that we find unity unattainable, really, if we think about it. The issue is more the outworking of unity. Because in our culture today, unity is a double-edged sword. If you and I are unified over something, we have a camaraderie that kind of forms over that. But outside of our unity, it's jagged edges. It's rigid. I'm a lifelong Chiefs fan. I was born in Kansas City, so I've been a Chiefs fan longer than the last five years, in case you didn't know. Uh, Lifelong Chiefs fan, and it's funny the way people are about sports teams. Uh, I told told my son, when it comes to Chiefs Chiefs fandom, my wife and I went to uh, Silver Dollar City a few years ago. Everywhere I went, it was during the fall, so it was football season, everywhere I went, I saw people in Chiefs gear, and I was just like, my people. I don't even like Branson, really, but I was all of a sudden like, I'm home. It's my people here. I've told my son, because uh, I grew up when John Elway broke my heart every year, that um, if the Denver Broncos went, oh, and whatever the, the schedule was that year for the rest of the history, I would love it. I would feel no sort of compassion for Denver Bronco fans, zero. Because reality is like within the unity of my team and the loyalty and the love I have for my team outside of that, 
It's not so pretty. Earlier this month, we were watching uh, the Chiefs play the Bengals, and uh, the game wasn't going the right way. It's not the Chiefs' fault. Well, kind of the Chiefs' fault, but also I was not happy with the officiating. And there came to a point where I looked at my 20-year-old son and I was like, I hate the Bengals. Nobody hates the Bengals. The Bengals haven't done anything in 30 years. Hopefully that will continue today if you're a sports fan. Uh, but the reality is like in that moment when a perceived threat, what yes unifies my 20-year-old and I, outside of that unity, it's vicious. It's rigid. It's a double-edged sword. Unity in the world means everyone in the group is accepted, but everyone outside the group needs to be watched. Unity in the world means sometimes and oftentimes inevitably has an us versus them mentality. We see this in school spirit. Uh, we see this in business. As I said earlier, you know, if you've got marketing campaigns aimed at throwing shade at the competition, you see it in business, you see it in politics and allegiance to a party or to a candidate and everyone outside that party or candidate is not just another candidate or an opponent, it's an enemy. We've become so tribal. And even this week in the New York Times, there's an editorial written and the title of the editorial was, our tribalism will be the death of us. Listen to this quote from the middle of it. We humans are inherently tribal creatures. I get that. I have read and remember enough history and headlines not to be surprised. But the work of civilization, the advancement of it, involves containing that tribalism, controlling it, moderating it with grander and more unifying ideals. We are inherently tribal creatures. And while the uh, editorialist tries to sound hopeful with a call to control our tribalism, who in here feels like that's the trajectory we're on? The problem with unity in the world is that someone is always on the outside. And the way the insiders view the outsiders is almost at best with suspicion. And we see tribalism in the church too. It can be doctrinal tribalism, for years, when I was younger, I basically wouldn't read or listen to anybody that didn't agree with pretty much everything that I agreed with. And that's not uncommon. You actually see that a lot in the church. We see racial tribalism in the church. We can see social economic, socioeconomic tribalism in the church. Christian, Christian Twitter is a scary place. Very scary place because what you're seeing is brothers and sisters that are just waylaying, laying haymakers at one another. Facebook debates about theology or celebrity pastors can be a rabbit hole that can be hard to escape. So is unity this utopian pipe dream? Well, Jesus might say otherwise. In the context that we find ourselves in John 17, as I mentioned earlier, we are now in the upper room. Uh, prior, they've just had Passover. Jesus has just washed the disciples' feet as a symbol of the cleansing that he is about to bring through his crucifixion and resurrection. He exhorts them to continue his works. He encourages them that he's not leaving them alone in their mission because he's giving them the spirit. And he calls them to remain in him so that they can bear fruit. And then he stops to pray. And this prayer by Jesus is one of the most profound prayers ever recorded. In John's gospel account, these are actually the last words that he prays and speaks over his disciples before they head out to the garden and he's arrested. And don't you think what Jesus prays might be important? Shouldn't we press into what Jesus might pray before the most pivotal moment in history? Well, let's listen to what Jesus prays, John 17. And Jesus said, after Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you've given him. Now this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Verse six, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. 
You gave them to me and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you've given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me and they accepted them. They knew a certainty that I came from you and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you've given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours and all you have is mine and glory has come to them through, or has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I've given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I'm sent them into the world. For them, I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you've sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be as one as we are one. I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you've given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you've given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. <laughs> this prayer, <laughs> it is breathtaking in its scope. It's like finding the secret wardrobe or passageway into this eternal reality that's always been there about the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. It's in some ways, not to diminish it, but in some ways it's almost like entering the matrix. It's like the curtains pulled back and you're like, wow, this is what's been going on forever, for eternity. This is what's been going on. And yet despite its lofty theology, and it's soul-quieting beauty. It's intensely practical. And what I sense the Lord wants us to do in our time together is to look at how this prayer relates to Jesus' call for us to remain in him. To do that, we will look closely at where he prays and particularly for his disciples that are in his midst. And as he looked ahead and prayed for those who would believe in his name. In other words, what he prayed for us. So what was on the heart of Jesus just a few hours before his arrest? Well, among a few things, one that seems to be pretty prevalent is unity, is oneness. Look at John 17, 13, or 17, 23, that they may be brought to complete unity. As Jesus prays, he definitely hits some key points and then he moves on to something else and he kind of circles back to another point that he made. And so we're not gonna walk through this verse by verse, okay? Instead, what I wanna do with unity in mind is I wanna look at four connected realities to, for us to consider regarding the unity Jesus is praying for us to have, okay? Four realities. I want us to look at the root of the unity that Jesus is calling us into, the nature of the unity that Jesus is calling us into. I want us to see the fruit of this unity and then the way into it, okay? So the root, the nature, the fruit, and then how we get into this unity. First, let's look at the root. If unity is Jesus's desire for his disciples, then what is the root of that call to unity? Where does he get that call? Well, one of the beautiful aspects about Jesus, one of the many, is he never asks you to do something he's unwilling to do. And that's actually a key to understanding the whole story of the Bible. Jesus actually comes as God in the flesh to live the life 
that you and I couldn't live and didn't live, and he came to be an Israelite, as N.T. Wright jokes, it's important that we understand he's not Canadian. There's a reason he's an Israelite. He's the perfect Israelite. He's God's chosen people who are God's chosen people in the Old Testament who actually got it right. He's the Israelite that got it right from A to Z. He was always faithful to the Father. He always cared for the orphan, the widow, and the foreigner. He was full of grace. He was full of truth. Earlier on in his farewell discourse while washing the disciples' feet, look what Jesus says in John 13. I have set you an example that you do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And when it comes to a call to unity, Jesus has modeled for us this unity and what it should look like. Jesus is calling us to mirror the unity of the triune God. Look at John 17:4 or 17:1. Father, glorify your son that your son may glorify you. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. The word glory here means praise or to celebrate or to magnify or to honor. Do you see the way the Godhead works? The Father shares his glory. He shares his praise with the Son. The Son glorifies the Father. The Son is obedient to do the works of the Father that he gave him to do. It's mutual glory, mutual honor, mutual praise. The Spirit is sent by the Father in the name of the Son, and he goes. If the root of Jesus' call and his desire for unity is something God does already within himself, then we know that unity is woven into the fabric of creation. The very person behind creation is unified within himself. And while we live in a broken world by sin and by rebellion, by pain, we know that unity is in the fabric of its original design. So right now, some of you are in here thinking of that one person or multiple uh, in, in the family of God that you just don't think you could be unified with. You might think it's impossible. You might think it's me. Maybe they are in the room, this individual. Maybe they're in your family. Maybe they're in the church across town. Maybe you see them on TV. Wherever they are and whoever they are, Jesus is calling us back to a unity that existed before the foundation of the world. He is calling us to a mutual honoring of one another. Jesus said he's making all things new. In Revelation, he says that. And one of the ways this begins is in his people mirroring the unity of the triune God. So if the root of this call to unity is within the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, then the nature of this unity really should resemble the nature of God himself. And so John tells us that in John 1, he says, the word was made flesh and he was full of grace and truth. And so fittingly, as you look at, uh, take a survey of this prayer, one of the key natures it shows of, of unity is that we're rooted in truth. Jesus wants his people to be united in truth, but not just truth abstractly, right? Like his goal is for us to be united in the truth about God, Israel's God, Yahweh. Look at what he says in John 17, six. I have revealed you. They have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you. Jesus is saying that he revealed an eternal truth about the nature of who God is. And this truth was accepted. And the unity that Jesus actually desires for us to have is based on truth. Not just a set of doctrinal truths that we assent to as important as that is, because that alone is not enough. The unity he desires is that we are united around the person, united around the truth 
of God revealed to us in Jesus Christ. But look what else he says. He says I've, in verse six, I've received, I've revealed you, they have obeyed your word. Being united around truth is not enough in and of itself. Truth must not just be believed, it must be practiced. What's funny is like that rubs a lot of us the wrong way, but we know this is true in all kinds of other areas of life, right? Like we know that we can read a, a scientific journal to say, okay, if I eat better and I exercise, I'm gonna have a lower risk of health problems and I might live longer. Just knowing that and believing that doesn't actually work itself out in your life though. Um, you've gotta practice that and that can be hard to practice, but you've gotta do it for it to actually activate in your life. So obedience to the truth by faith is unifying and it's necessary. If you read any of the scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament, there's a distinct call by God for his people to be holy, for his people to be set apart. A common word for that is the word sanctification or to be sanctified. That means that we are to be a holy and set apart people, a kingdom of priests to our God. This is Bible language. And Jesus, like Paul, would say that our sanctification, our growing in holiness, our growing into the image of Jesus and his holy father is unequivocally tied to truth. Look at what Jesus says in John 17. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As God is holy, so we are called to be holy. And once again, Jesus is not calling us to something that isn't rooted already in himself and he's already shown us by his life. Jesus' desire is for us to be a people who are set apart from the world as people who speak and obey the truth. We are to be sanctified by that truth. We are to be made holy by that truth. And this isn't just like his desire. It's not like, man, this would be really great if that happened. This is his prayer. This is what he asks the Father to work out in us by praying this way. Jesus makes it very clear his desire for his disciples, both then and now and everyone in between to be unified in the truth about God that we practice and set us apart for his purposes. And what does that purpose show to be in this passage? Well, we are to be a people who are sent. If you look at John 17, starting in verse 15, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Notice two points here quickly. First, Jesus distinctly says he doesn't want the Father to take us out of the world. That means that for Christians to retreat from the world is opposite of God's desire for us. Yes, life is too valuable. Being an image bearer of God, life is too valuable to be reckless and foolish. However, no matter how evil the world may seem or even be, we are not called to retreat into a holy huddle. We're called to go. We're called to remain where we are as long as God would have us here in the world. And trust me, look at the scriptures. The Father will not send any of us into a situation more fraught or dangerous than the one he sent his own son into. Once again, we are asked to not only go where Jesus went before us, but, God, but he, where he did go before us. God is ascending God. He sent his son. And now his son asks that we go. The son sends us. But secondly, we're in good hands as we go into the world. We're in good hands because we're in God's hands. The word protect in that passage here means to keep. It's not saying protect as in there's no harm. If you read on in this very book, John 21, Jesus is having an exchange with Peter and basically tells Peter, it's not going to end well for you. 
on earth. You're gonna die for my glory. And Peter has to deal with that. So this is not saying protection as though like, well, sorry, Peter, I, I dropped the ball on you, brother, but uh, the rest of y'all take heart. And hopefully I won't for you. That's, that's not what he's saying. It's about keeping. And he says it even here. Uh, he said, and it basically means is that we're bound up in God himself. How can we be kept? Because we're bound up in God. We are not of this world. We belong to God. If you look at what he says in John 17, 11, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me. We are in God's hands and we're kept by God's name. No matter, no power can snatch us out. No matter how dire the circumstance, we are in God's hands and we are eternally forever secure. So where might Jesus be pressing you in any of these areas? Is he pressing you in truth? Are there areas in your life where, in my life, where you don't want to submit to the truth of God because you, you like doing it your way? I'm an Enneagram eight. I like doing everything my way. Are there areas in your life where he's pressing on you? What about holiness? Is there ongoing sin in your life that's robbing you of peace? Or maybe Jesus is asking you to go somewhere, your workplace, your hobbies, take him with you there, or maybe somewhere else geographically altogether to make his name known. Maybe he's sending you. Maybe he's sending us. What, what does this mean for us? as a local body of believers united around him. We're called to unity that is rooted in the glory of the triune God and mirrors God through unity and truth and holiness and sent together to the world. And when that happens, what does Jesus say will be the fruit of that unity? Look at what he says in John 17, 21. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I am them and you and me so that we may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me. Being rooted in the unity within God and the nature of our unity being one of a people sent to the world, unified in grace and truth and holiness, well, the fruit of our unity then is that some in the world who hate us will believe. When Jesus' disciples now are able to have unity, it compels an unbelieving world to consider Jesus as the one who was sent from God. Instead of infighting and Twitter sparring, bad mouthing, believing the worst first about our brothers and sisters, we can be one as the Godhead is one and we can be that city on a hill. That's his desire. And what's more, another fruit that you see is that we, this would all result in joy. Look what he says in 1713, I'm coming to you now but I say these things while I am in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. The full measure, not a little bit of joy, not on your good days, the full measure of joy. There is an attractiveness to this type of community. A community filled with joy that is unified around the nature and character of our beautiful, good God. And if you lose one of those things, it's no longer attractive. I'm sure we've all seen churches that are very tethered to truth, but don't practice it. I'm sure that the world sees that. The world believes a lot these days that we are just a bunch of hypocrites who say we believe this, but act this way. Or maybe what happens if we lose truth, if we're tethered to nothing? 
then at this point, there's just all relative. It's all subjective. You can't be unified over a moving target. Or what happens if, yeah, we, we definitely speak the truth and we are definitely living the truth, but we are not joyful. We are bitter. We are frustrated. We are unhappy. You lose one of these things, the witness struggles. The world knows hypocrisy when it sees it. If we as a church, if you and I as individuals are lacking in these areas, the first place we go is not to clean ourselves up. The first place we go is to Jesus, to abide. As we have discussed, apart from Jesus, we cannot and we will not bear this fruit. But abiding in Jesus, remaining in Jesus, is how we're transformed and unified in this vocation of being his sent people, full of grace and truth. So if we see the, the root of our unity is eternal in the Godhead himself. We see that as we mirror the character of God, it unifies us together. And as that happens, the unbelieving world is attracted and some will believe. But how do we actually get in to this unity? I mean, we can follow the logical transitions here, but how do we realize this beautiful unity? How do we abide? Look what he says in John 17, 1. Father, the hour has come. In the gospel of John, when you see the term, the hour this is referring to Jesus' death and resurrection. That's why if you can think back to the first sign, as John calls them, in the Gospel of John, it is happening at a wedding in Cana. And God forbid, the wine has run out. We don't want shame on the family. What are we gonna do? And Mary goes, I got an idea. And so she grabs Jesus and she basically says, the wine's run out. And look what Jesus' response is to her. Why do you involve me in this? My hour has not yet come. Now, was he talking about the hour for me to, to, to flex is not here yet? The hour for me to basically be like, bam, wine is not here yet? No. He's talking about the cleansing of his people. That's why it's so interesting that what they choose to fill with water is the purification jars. It's all symbolic. And he sees that and he's going, it's not time for me to die and rise yet, mom. It's not time. Now it's time. The hour has come. And when this hour, this hour that has come, when it runs its course, when Jesus goes to the cross, what's it gonna accomplish? Well, Look what he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you for you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you, you have given him. Now this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The hour for Jesus is the way for him to grant us eternal life. And what is eternal life? To know God and Jesus Christ, his son, whom he sent. To know God, to know him personally, relationally, to know God. This is a phrase you've probably heard if you've been in church for long but it stands to bear repeating because it's true. There's a difference between knowing about God and knowing God. There's a difference between believing something is true and truly, actually trusting it. It's in the knowing and the trusting that we find eternal life. But <clears throat> I want you to look at me if you've grown up in church especially. Because if a lot of your experience in church has basically been like, I know the gospel, and it's basically like, I'm a sinner and I need forgiveness for my sin from God. 
And so I put my faith in Jesus. He forgives me of my sin. That can feel very transactional. It can feel very transactional. It's easy for us. And I, my dad's a Baptist pastor. I grew up, I used to say, like he would lead a, a, you know, a prayer at the end of a lot of services for repentance. And I'd, um, I'd say it probably seven, eight times a year, make sure it's stuck. You know, like it's, it can be very, because in between those times, I've messed up a lot. It can feel very transactional. And the problem is not that that's not true. There is a transaction that takes place. That's scriptural. We do need that. This is how God saves us. This is how it happens. Through belief in Jesus' substitutionary death, his life, his death, and his resurrection on our behalf. He even says as much in the prayer where he says in John 17, 19, uh, sanctify, he says, oh, let me pull it up over here. He says, um, for them I sanctify myself and they too may be, that they too may be truly sanctified. We can't even be sanctified if he's not holy and our, and our substitute. But this only gets you into the family of God, which is vital. You can't abide in Christ. We can't be unified if we're not in the same family. But this doesn't mean you're gonna experience unity. To experience the unity that Jesus desires for us is to experience the heart behind the hour. The heart of the Father who sent the Son. The heart of the Son who asks the Father to send us his Spirit, the Comforter. So what is the heart behind the hour? Well, look at how John transitions in his gospel to these last days. At the beginning of his second kind of, where I said earlier, he kind of slows time down in John 13. Look at how he starts it. It was before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. The heart behind the man of the hour is a heart of love. Have you ever driven to Memphis after we've gotten a lot of rain over a long period of time? And you pass through West Memphis and you head east on I-40 and you're heading towards the bridge that thank the Lord has been repaired. And as you're driving, you can tell I have a lot of issues with traffic. As you're, uh, as you're driving up towards the bridge, you gaze to your right and all of a sudden the river's there. You're like, I thought the river was way up here where the bridge is. And yet the river has already bursted its banks and it's flowing into the flatlands of Arkansas. Friends, that is a small, minute picture of the love Jesus has for us. The hour has come and his love bursts the banks as it flows. Listen again to his prayer. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you've sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you've sent me and have loved me even as you have, and have loved them even as you've loved me. Father, I want those you've given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you've given me because you've loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you and they know that you sent me. I've made you known to them and will continue to make known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and I myself may be in them. Does that sound like just a transactional prayer? It is dripping with love and nothing can be so quieting to a disquieted world than to step into and know personally the love of the God who made them, who died for them and who rose again so that they can have eternal life to know God and Jesus Christ, his son, who he sent. The good news 
is not just that Jesus provides the transaction. It's not that we owe, it's not only, I should say, that we owe this insurmountable debt, but now we're back to zero. No, the good news is that Jesus doesn't just erase our debt, but he brings us into himself. He in us, the Father in him, so that we may be brought to complete unity. And Jesus' heart of love, it's evident all throughout the prayer. Look at what he says, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me. He's not annoyed by you. He wants you to be with him. He's not careless towards you. He wants you to be with him. It's not only a transaction for him. It's a purchase of his bride. The way into the unity that Jesus desires for us is to understand that the love God has for Jesus, he now has for us. Consider that. The love God has for Jesus is the same love he has for his people. You can only abide in Jesus if he first abides in you. But if Jesus abides in you, and if Jesus abides in us, then there's hope for unity. And as you think about it, only a people who believe that they are unified in a love this rich and deep and unfailing are freed up to actually both love their brother and sister in the family of God and also freed up to love and pursue people outside the family of God. What about disagreements? You might be sitting here thinking, well, there's lots of different churches and we don't all agree on things and that's okay. A community of people animated by the love of God and their experience of grace, here's what can happen though with, with disagreements, both within the church locally and within the church at large. If we fully are animated by this love of God, then we are quicker to show, number one, we're quicker to show one another honor and respect in our disagreement. That's part of that, the root, where we come from, the honor and respect bestowed in the Godhead. Number two, we're, we're, we're both, when we're gonna be holding both God's truth in word and in practice together in nature, in, in our nature. And also we speak to one another to resolve differences. Instead of going to Twitter or behind each other's backs, and I can be just as guilty of this. This is definitely something that would take practice as we mature, but we would speak to one another and resolve differences in kindness because of the love we have for one another and because the world is watching. The world is without a doubt watching. And then lastly, we desire to see the fruit of unity, to show the beauty of God's name and to experience joy. This is a unity this type of unity doesn't have rigid and sharp edges. It's dripping with the sweet honey of grace. My job, as I finish up, what I do for a living is I work with churches. Uh, I actually work with churches on property and casualty insurance. And I've been doing it for 15 years. And there's a small collection of people over here in the front that can tell you, when I was 26 and started my job, I loved the Bible, I loved the truth, and if you didn't agree with me, I kinda wondered if you read the same Bible. Arrogant. But I, I didn't feel it in the moment. I felt like, you know, I, I, this is true and it's pretty clear, so I don't really know how you could miss that. And so I remember going into my job, because I'm working with all the, if in case you didn't know, there's lots of varieties of everything. Varieties of Baptists, varieties, and I don't mean like different kinds of people, I mean different church organizations. Baptists, missionary Baptists, Luther, different kinds of Lutherans, different kinds of Methodists, different kinds of Presbyterians. And I'm going into this thinking, I'm, I just gotta steer clear of any conversation about theology because you know this is business and it, I just don't know that I trust myself to not fly off some kind of, I, I'm a little snarky to fly off on some kind of you know, snarky comment that's gonna get me in trouble. Uh, and I remember over time what has happened is as I've got to know brothers and sisters that are in different churches that would maybe disagree with me on things, not the core things, not who Jesus is, not the Trinity, 
Not what we, when we talked about our deep truths in, in the fall and the winter, not those things, but on, sub, on second, third tier issues, what I've found is that, man, they, they do love Jesus. They do read the Bible. They may come away with, with areas, you know, with different interpretations of that than me. And I'm not saying we're both right, but the reality is that at some point, whether I'm wrong and they're right or they're, or, or I'm right and they're wrong, is that right? Uh, e- either way, I got my tang tongue there. Either way you go, Ultimately, if, if, you're, if it's driven by love, it's driven by honor. What I've learned is that there can be a deeper unity, even across denominational lines, that maybe we have seen in the past. It's something I'm growing in. I'm definitely not there, but I've just seen it in my own life as I've gotten to know brothers and sisters across the aisle, across town. We may not be part of the same church, and that's Okay. Jesus is praying for unity in his followers to come, but Jesus knew the future. I mean, he knew there would be disagreements even within the apostles. There was, you just read Acts. I believe that's why he prayed that we would all realize the love he has for us because only the love of God can unite people across tribal lines. As the church continues to work these things out in love on the inside, the multiplication of his works and the expanse and expanded range of his works we do in the world will have its intended effect. As we abide in Jesus, our understanding of his love will grow. And as our understanding of his love grows, as we give honor to brothers and sisters who we may not always agree with, that love will attract a world who only understands a unity that creates in us versus them. When we abide in Jesus, and, and when we abide in Jesus and, and he in us, and when we truly believe that the heart of God towards his people is filled with a love like this, we will be equipped to step into a unity with one another that tells the world a better story, gives them a sure hope, and shows them our beautiful God. Let's pray. Father, we come this morning Acknowledging that we often substitute pursuing unity with each other for tribalism, for ease, instead of doing the work necessary for unity. Forgive us, Lord. Burst the banks of our own understanding of your love and flood us anew with the love you have for Jesus that you share with us because of our union with him. And may the reality that, is, that he is in you and we are in him and that now we are one, let that reality make us complete. Father, I pray that you would grant Jesus' request 2,000 years ago. Make us complete in unity so that an unbelieving world will believe that you truly sent Jesus to offer eternal life by faith in him. We need you to do it. And so we ask you to, in Jesus' name, amen.